0: This episode deals with some sensitive content, so a listener's discretion is advised.
1: Sexual abuse is something that is rarely handled properly. Most pedophiles, most sexual abuse takes place uh, with someone that you know. And so the abuser is very skilled at using uh, circumstances, at using grooming techniques, at ingratiating themselves into a community so that if a survivor ever speaks up, and ever says, you know, something something's happening that shouldn't be happening, uh, they will not be believed.
0: Welcome to Undiscussed, the show where we talk about things Christians should
2: talk about but often don't. This week we discuss sexual abuse with Rachel Den Hollander.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Undiscussed, a podcast where we talk about the things that we think Christians should talk about. Um, the premise behind the show is that uh, in in any Christian circles, um, whatever you happen to uh, belong to, whatever denomination, whatever um, organization that you belong to, it's likely that there are certain topics that uh, that are routinely avoided, either because uh, people don't know how to use the right language, or they don't know how to you know say the right things, or even speak the right biblical truths. There's a variety of reasons why certain topics are ignored, and on this show, we want to create a space where we can have those discussions, that uh, where we can learn from each other, and um, just make you know, productive changes to how we, how we view things and how to be more loving as Christians and more empathetic and, and listen better uh, to, to others and, and to their stories. So uh, this is uh, going to be a great episode. I'm really excited, particularly because we have a guest host with us today. Um, you might know her from uh, such YouTube videos as Pat and Suze explain Stuff. Uh, Suze will be joining me as the co-host today. Welcome to the show, Suze. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for co-hosting with me.
3: I'm happy to be here. I'm a little uh, nervous. It's,
0: but a, it's totally normal. Is um, it? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm nervous all the time, and it's probably just because of how much coffee I drink. But uh, it's okay. You just got to lean into it. Okay. Yes. Lean in. So, so we've been talking about this, uh, the issue that we're going to be addressing um, in this episode for a while. And just, just a, a warning um, to any listeners, it... Uh, this episode is about uh, sexual abuse uh, in and outside of the church. Uh, so, if um, that's a sensitive topic to anybody listening, um, just uh, be aware, be warned. If it's not the right time for you to, to listen to it, totally okay. Um, come back to it another time. Uh, but just uh, just a little bit of a disclaimer. But yeah, sexual abuse is is what we're going to be tackling today, which is is pretty weighty and um, it, there's a lot of uh, gravity to that to that issue. Suze, why are you so Passionate about talking about this.
3: Yeah, I think as a female, it's important um, just because of some of the statistics around sexual abuse um, for females, and uh, yeah, and uh, I am passionate about calling out injustice when there is injustice there. And this is just such a a hidden um, a hidden thing. Like people don't talk about it, and uh, I think damage is done when we don't talk about it. And so I'm I'm feeling empowered, as specifically, or especially because of the guests that we have today. Um, I'm just encouraged by her bravery and courage and her uh, relentless pursuit of the gospel and the hope that is found there. So I'm passionate because of her.
0: Yeah, and I think I relate to that, too. I was uh, really excited for this conversation, too, um, which I acknowledge is a, a weird thing to be excited about, but uh, it's because... Um, the person that we have on this show, which I promise uh, I'll introduce them in a couple of seconds here, uh, has been a great example of uh, clinging to the truths of the gospel and holding on to a, like a beautiful theology while standing up for herself, calling out injustice, and just being uh, a strong voice uh, for those who, who who haven't found that voice yet and who haven't, uh, you know, had that opportunity to, to step out uh, in faith and, and call out sin um, in this area. So, Without further ado, uh, we would like to introduce Rachel Den Hollander to the podcast. Rachel, welcome.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, we're so happy to have you. And um, today, I uh, just want to give a little bit of a, a little bit of um, an introduction. If you if it's wrong, just let me know. If you want to fill in any gaps, um, but former gymnast, uh, and uh, you now have uh, a degree in law, and you are a mother of three, soon to be four. Actually, at the time of this is released, you will have uh, a beautiful fourth child. There will be. And. Um, and you are uh, an active advocate uh, for abuse survivors. And there's so much more to you than that. There's so much more to your story um, than that. But does does that kind of uh, cover, you know, all the hats that you happen to wear these days?
1: I think it does. I lose track of them, though. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Um, there, there are many hats that you wear. So uh, you have shared your story so many times. I mean, even just before this interview, we, we did a little bit of a... Um, a video, you know, of you sharing your story and, uh, and talking about how the gospel applies to it. Um, so we'd like to get into that. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious, um, with the, the frequency with which you, you share this story, is it, is it healing for you to keep talking about it? Is it, uh, empowering to you? How does it feel to, to be able to tell this story over and over and over again?
1: You know, that's a dynamic that I'm honestly still wrestling a little bit with. It's, it's not an easy topic to tackle. It's very personal. Uh, the fact that all of those details are out there and they're out there forever uh, is something that I'm really still wrestling with to a point. You know, there is there is very much a dynamic where I felt, especially for the first two years, like God had given me a job I didn't want. Mm. You know, this was not a platform I wanted ever. This was never something I imagined talking about, certainly much less ever being an advocate for. Um, you know, And so it has been an interesting dynamic to take on a role in a job uh, and an identity that I never wanted but I do believe it is incredibly important to be faithful where God has called you. I believe this is something that the church needs to tackle uh, and that there is desperate need for bringing the hope of the gospel to people that have been been wounded this way. And so I wanna do the best I can to be faithful.
0: For people who haven't uh, heard your story, maybe haven't watched the video uh, that we were talking about um, or, ha- or have been following the news, can you give a, a short recap um, of, of why you're making headlines and why you have no privacy these days?
1: Yeah, uh, so I was the first woman to speak publicly against a very prominent physician, a world-renowned physician named Larry Nasser. He was the team doctor for our United States Olympic gymnastics team and our elite program, uh, and he was a, a adjunct professor professor and a physician at Michigan State University, which is one of our biggest universities down here in the US. Uh, and so he was very, very famous in the gymnastics world uh, and very well loved. He, he had um, quite a gregarious, outgoing, uh, warm, caring personality. And so there is a lot of or was a lot of affection uh, for him in addition to his uh, just his his status in the gymnastics world. Uh, and so I, I was able to uh, file a police report for the sexual assault he had committed against me and to speak very publicly. Um, And the the end result is that he was revealed to be one of uh, the U.S.'s worst serial pedophiles in recorded history. Uh, He is in prison for the rest of his life. And we are still working for institutional accountability uh, for the many institutions that surrounded him and allowed him to be a predator for decades.
0: That is, yeah, that is really tragic and like really shocking um, that 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 could be happening. But at the same time, uh, the more that we hear about it, the less the less shocking maybe it should be. We should be indignant and upset about it, um, but it should be less shocking that there there's such depravity in the world and, and people are carrying out such um, evil things like and being protected. Um, so. I don't know maybe you could share a little bit about why why do you think it it, he was able to operate as long as as he did other than him being like a charismatic guy and just being you know really well liked what were some of the factors that that helped shelter shelter him and protect him while he while he did these things
1: yeah you know larry is a a perfect and famous example of dynamics that play out all over the place in every country Um, sexual abuse is something that is rarely handled properly. You know, most pedophiles, most sexual abuse takes place uh, with someone that you know, um, and so the you know, an abuser is very skilled at using uh, circumstances, at using grooming techniques, at ingratiating themselves into a community uh, so that if a survivor ever speaks up and ever says, you know, something, something's happening that shouldn't be happening, uh, they will not be believed. We have a lot of uh, stereotypes and old wives tales and myths that surround sexual abuse, uh, most typically when an abuse victim speaks up, they are going to be attacked for having said anything, um, attacked for ruining a good person, for having a sexualized mind that they would think something is going wrong, um, often attacked for wanting attention, wanting money, uh, wanting um, to be famous, you, you know, when you're coming out against someone who's, uh, who's a famous person. But those are dynamics that every sexual assault survivor experiences they're not believed or they're outright attacked. And so what we really see here with Larry is uh, just a national example of what sexual abuse survivors are suffering on a daily basis in every part of the country, in every walk of life.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really sad that... Um that the society operates that way. And I am even, whenever I hear something about, um, a sexual assault, someone being accused and people defending the person, uh, who's being accused, I try and put myself in the shoes, uh, of somebody who like knows that person. And I think of like, maybe the, the person that I most respect or more, most admire or look up to in my sphere. And just imagine like, if, if someone came to me, a friend came to me and said like, oh, he abused me. I, I, I think I my, my brain would have a hard time computing that it would it would like be difficult for me to understand. Oh, what I know of this person is like they like they would never do that. But to 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 deny someone's like testimony uh, seems equally crazy, if not more so, because the the desire to even pursue fame in that route, like nobody would wants to be want famous, them? yeah, well, no also, one wants to be famous for yeah, that.
3: And I followed a lot of your your writings and your research and stuff, and I, I've I've heard you say before that um, statistically, the people that come forward, like it's very minimal, the ones that are lying. It's like two to eight percent or yeah, something like that?
1: Yeah, two to, two to eight percent of reports are false and the vast majority of those that are false are in child custody dispute okay. cases. So statistically, it's incredibly rare. Uh, but the thing I think we really haven't realized uh, as a society is that all of these dynamics that make us feel like it's impossible for a person to be an abuser, that it feels like it's impossible for that abuse to have occurred. Uh, You know All those questions you're asking the victim, how how could that be? How could a person like this be an abuser? How could you have been abused in this particular set of circumstances? Those are all the dynamics that are making it possible for the abuse to be happening. Abusers know that. They ingratiate themselves into the community. They're very skilled manipulators. They're relying on you having that response too. And so what we need to be doing is taking those claims seriously and at minimum saying, look, we need to find out the truth and I'm going to help you report this and I'm going to help you find out the truth.
0: And on that note, it shouldn't be surprising, but this completely blew my mind when um, I read uh, your your statement on this, uh, how frequently it happens in the church and not just like the, you know, any church, but like the evangelical church yeah, in the States. And I'm sure Canada is very similar um, with regard to statistics. Uh, but I think it was in the Christianity Today article where you said that um, it actually probably happens more often, um, in the evangelical church than it does in the Catholic church. Yet the Catholic church is like known for this. And they're like, they're the butt of the people are joking about it now. Um, uh, but meanwhile in like evangelical churches, it's like, it's happening, it's happening more But for some reason, it's not getting the the same attention.
1: It's a lot more difficult to track in Protestant denominations. But what we do know is that the top three insurance companies uh, of Protestant organizations, churches, Christian ministries, they receive more reports of sexual abuse per year uh, than the Catholic church insurance companies receive. Uh, And that's that's really staggering if you think about it, because uh, that's only the top three. For Protestant organizations, whereas the Catholic Church having the hierarchical system that it does actually does a better job of tracking uh, abuse reports than Protestant denominations do, and yet we still often see a higher rate of reports. And then if you look at in our U.S. system, uh, in our federal court system, the reason that Protestant churches are typically held liable in federal court uh, out of the last 10 years, more than 10 years, the number one reason that churches have been found legally liable to their parishioners, with the exception of last year, uh, is for mishandling or failing to prevent childhood sexual abuse in the church. So we have a significant problem with abuse in the church, and we have a very significant problem with how we handle it.
0: Why do you think it's, it's so... Rampant Is it because uh, churches are just like safe spaces? And as you said before, you know, predators are really good at finding those safe spaces to operate within. Is it because Christians are like supposed to be more trustworthy so that uh, they're more protected? I mean, it might be speculative, but uh, do you have any idea like why it's so, so rampant in the evangelical church in particular.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, that really is part of the dynamic, is that we have made it a safe place. A lot of churches are safe places for predators. Uh, Some of the foremost experts on childhood sexual abuse, Ann Salter being one of them, uh, has done an incredible amount of research on how abusers select their victims, how they select the places that they're going to ingratiate themselves. And one of the things she found is that they will often target faith communities, particularly faith communities with... um, Uh, high authority structures, a high view of authority. And because faith communities uh, are much more likely to mishandle and misapply concepts of justice and forgiveness and grace, uh, it ultimately makes it a very safe place for an abuser. Because the authority structure means uh, that any child who speaks out, any victim who speaks out, uh, is not going to be given priority. The abuser is going to be given priority in terms of who's believed. Uh, And misapplying those concepts of justice and grace and forgiveness uh, means that the victim will be pushed uh, to, quote unquote, forgive and forget, forgive and move on, uh, which is not a biblical definition of forgiveness by any means. But the theology uh, that a lot of these churches hold when they misuse it, unfortunately, makes churches a very safe place for predators.
0: After the break, Rachel explains why churches can sometimes be safer for predators than for survivors.
2: This episode is brought to you by P2C Plus, an annual student conference in Toronto. What makes this conference different than any other conference you hypothetically
0: ask right now? Well, I'm here to tell you. With TED Talk-inspired keynote messages, a New Year's Eve countdown party, and more workshops than you can shake your Bible at, P2C Plus is one of the best ways you could choose to spend the last few days of 2018.
2: This year, the theme is new, and we'll be focused on what it means to be a new creation in Jesus. For more information, go to p2cplus.com. That's P2C, P-L-U-S, dot com.
0: There's something about, like, the theology that, that they use or that they twist that, that gives them, like, the justification to to downplay it, to protect the people in power. And I... Can't get over the irony of churches being a safe place for predators and not being a safe place for for victims. And even in other situations too. I mean, we had a, an episode recently about alcoholism, and and she said, um, the person on that podcast, said that she's felt more safe in her alcoholic and Alcoholics Anonymous group sharing her story than in her own church group. And that seems like it's it's the exact same. Um, situation where like you probably feel much more safe outside the church than speaking up inside the church what what about the gospel uh is being so poorly twisted to justify these things like is there some some element that we're just like taking um as christians and 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 twisting and injecting sin into it in order to use it for our own like levers of like, maintaining power or prestige?
1: Now that's a really deep question because there's a lot of theological reasons that churches do what they do, uh, but one of the most interesting dynamics is when you're dealing with a church it is almost always theologically driven. You, know, you deal with, a say, a state university, like in my case with MSU, uh, and you're dealing with an institution that's trying to protect money. They're trying to protect reputation, they're trying to protect their sports program. Uh, they have pretty obvious motivations for why they're doing what they're doing and their common motivations, but you deal with a church and you're dealing with an ideology for why they're handling abuse a particular way. Uh, The the pastors and leaders are theologically committed to ideas uh, that cause them to handle abuse poorly, that cause them to not even recognize abuse sometimes, uh, that cause them to counsel victims in ways that are incredibly damaging uh, to the survivors. And because it's theologically motivated, it's incredibly difficult Uh, to change that tide, because when you start discussing these concepts of theology, when you start discussing what's gone wrong in the church, the automatic presumption is you must hate the gospel. You must hate the church. You must be bitter because you've had a bad experience with the church. Uh, And and the church often will really um, kind of batten down the hatches, for lack of a better term, uh, because they believe they're being persecuted. They really believe they have done the right things. And they believe that you shining light on what they have done uh, is further persecution to them. And so it almost empowers the church uh, to continue doing what they're doing. So it's very difficult to deal with. Uh, In terms of the core theologies that often lead churches to do this, uh, a really over-realized view of authority is often at the heart of it. Uh, Pastors uh, who do not believe um, that they need to look outside of Uh, the the quote-unquote gifts that God has given them or the the authority that God has given them in order to handle abuse, Uh, a real mistrust or distaste for secular authority Uh, so that secular authority is not really truly seen, uh, civil authority is not really truly seen as something that is given by God, that the civil government isn't seen as a realm that we are to submit to, even pastors are to submit to, Uh, a misapplied view oftentimes of male and female authority uh, where a woman's voice is not in practicality and in truth valued uh, the way it needs to be. Uh, and then also misapplying go- you know, concepts of grace and forgiveness. Uh, a view of forgiveness that essentially means you forget and you move on. Uh, the idea that if you respond properly to your abuse uh, that the damage will go away. you know, A minimization of the, de- of the depth and the devastation of sexual assault and oftentimes an incredible lack of knowledge uh, for the dynamics of abusers uh, for how abusers operate, for what it looks like to enable an abuser, uh, because the pastors haven't gone outside of uh, their their own knowledge base to educate themselves on how to deal with a problem that is absolutely rampant in our culture and in our churches.
3: I was going to say I was going to ask you to clarify the authority issue because I had when I was looking at it the issues I was like I think it's a power struggle it's like a fear, but those actually are in the theological discussion that you just said yeah like that absolutely those are... well and
1: it, you know and it's it's you have to be careful how you how you discuss that because a pastoral authority and church authority is a good godly biblical thing you know god gave us the church god gave us elders god gave us pastors and they do have authority to shepherd their flock and even to meet out church discipline and so those are biblical concepts but when they are misapplied when they get out of balance, when they're not held in balance with the other authority structures that God has given us, including civil authorities, what you end up seeing, even even inadvertently and with good motivation, is an abuse of authority that makes it a safe place for predators and a very damaging place for survivors.
0: We have this funny complex sometimes in Canada of like looking at the things that are sometimes happening in the States and being like, whoa, at least we're like, not that bad <laughs> <laughs> like things Like becomes like they, in certain <laughs> pockets become so hyperbolic. Um, but then there's usually one or two voices that come out and they're like, actually, <laughs> we're not actually, we're not better. Um, and you know, things might look bad, uh, in, you know, in the States, in this area, but if you like, look, look at it, we're actually just better at like diverting, uh, or ignoring it or downplaying it or just like accepting it as like a part of Or we
3: don't own. have the same amount of coverage or the same population. So it's not as yeah, prominent. It's, it's not
0: as prominent. People don't really care about what Canada thinks or what's happening up there very often. So it just doesn't get as much coverage, but I, I wonder, um, like how, how bad it even is up there in churches. Like, I don't, th- th- please correct me if this is a, a, a poor question to ask, um, or like a, you know, maybe a, 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 bad, you know, thought experiment. But as a woman, Suze, if you were at a church in, in Canada, would you feel, um, like empowered to, to stand up, to, to like, to, to call out somebody who you think has mistreated you? Do you think you'd have, have support without, it it doesn't have to be tied to any specific church. Okay. I was like, (laughs) I have no interest in, in down, you know, like calling out any, any specific churches or anything like that, but, um, just climate wise, I don't, I can't even speak into it because I, I haven't been in that situation or like have been close to it.
3: So, um, when Rachel was speaking earlier for another uh, thing that we were working on for a video, she had talked about how victims are always looking or survivors, however you wanna what term. Both. both. Looking. Is this safe? Is this place safe? And I think for me, I don't know where my where that comes from for me, if I was abused or I don't actually I don't think I was sexually abused, but um, I, in my personality or something, I am also looking around and seeing, is this a safe place? And sometimes the dynamics of the church that I feel is there is sort of a power issue where I'm constantly questioning, can I trust those that are in authority over me? Can I trust that they... um, Yeah, I want what is best for me or do they just want um, their own image to be protected protected, or that they are, um, I don't know. I I don't always get the flavor of humility (laughs) in in my church. So I don't know how to answer that question, but I don't, I would have a hard time coming out, I think, and talking about wrong that was done to me unless I had someone else doing it for me or coming alongside me?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I only ask that because I'm I, there are plenty of, uh, of examples, probably just, again, by uh, just sheer population-wise and the size of churches and um, how many of them are in the States, that there have been uh, many allegations that have come forward and examples of uh, churches handling it wrong. I might just not be aware of them, but I'm, I'm not sure if any of that have happened yet in Canada, although I'm almost absolutely positive that, that it's happening there too. Um, but I guess maybe for, for people who aren't familiar with any of those cases, um, Rachel, do you have any that's, that, that stand out to you, of like uh, um, churches that have just severely mishandled a situation like this and where their like, obvious blind spots were in, in addressing it properly?
1: Yeah, there have been, <clears throat> there's been a, a substantial number of Christian organizations and churches in the last few years uh, that have finally um, had to reckon with or, or at least been confronted with the way they have handled abuse and allegations of mishandling abuse in their churches. Um, And this ranges from the Southern Baptist denomination and Paige Patterson, who is one of the most prominent um, presidents of our our second biggest seminary down here, uh, finally being confronted with his counsel to women who are in both domestic and sexual abuse situations. Uh, you have a, a denomination called Sovereign Grace Churches, uh, around whom allegations have been swirling for a decade, and they have yet to submit to an independent investigation to examine those allegations. Uh, you have um, groups like Institute and Basic Life Principles, Vision Forum Ministries, Wheaton College, Baylor University, uh, You know, and I could go on and on and on and on um, and, and you really see the same dynamics in all of those organizations. You see men who oftentimes truly believe they have done the right thing. They are committed to their theology. Uh, they are committed to the ideology. Uh, and it makes it very difficult for them to, to even recognize what they have done. Uh, there is a real unwillingness to submit to any kind of outside authority or independent investigation uh, that can really look at the facts and get to the bottom uh, and so the you know the automatic response is, well, if you're talking about these things, you're attempting to damage the church. You must be bitter, you must be angry. Rather than saying, "Wait a minute, these allegations are serious. This is, you know the, these the consequences, if we mishandle this, are devastating to God's children. So we need to we need to find out what really happened. We need to pursue the truth regardless of where the truth leads, and to submit to, an independent investigation, to submit to outside authority, to submit to someone that is skilled in being able to sift through the facts and sift through the evidence and reach a good conclusion. Churches are very unwilling to do that, and because they're unwilling to do that, what they consistently signal is, speak up and we will attack your character. Speak up uh, and you will automatically be viewed as someone who, uh, who hates Christ, who is damaging the gospel, who has, quote, zeal without knowledge. Uh, and what that really does is it communicates to predators that they're safe and it communicates to victims that they're not.
0: It's just n- nuts to think or even imagine someone going up to a pulpit and saying that like outright, but it's so evident in, in how... These cases are handled. That you might as well be doing that, walking up there and using those words and just saying that in front of a congregation. Um, But I I guess to not be completely one hundred percent bleak, I noticed on your on your Facebook page recently, you were very pleased with how a church has recently called out um, abuse in their own church and the steps that they took. you, You, I'll let you share in your own words, like. Share us about that or share with us a little bit about that story and what you what you appreciated about how they addressed it.
1: Yeah, you know, and that that is one of the most beautiful things for me to see as a church that does it well, because it displays the glory of God. It displays uh, the beauty of Christ. It displays a fully faceted, uh, picture of who God is—a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of justice. Who takes sin very seriously. Uh, and what this, what what happened with with this particular church was there was a leader that was uh, found to have engaged in ultimately sexually abusive behavior. And at the time that this was discovered, the pastor was no longer at that church, uh, but he had been. He had been a youth minister there. And so the first thing that those in authority at that church did was they took the allegations seriously. Yeah, you know, they listened. They believed the survivors and they went back to their church and they said, look, these are the allegations. If anyone has any information, please come forward. They made themselves a safe place. Uh, They they put out a statement educating their congregation on what sexual abuse looks like because the the particular behavior this man had engaged in that they knew to that point uh, was was, he was massaging someone, the boy's feet when he was counseling. That was, it was, it's very bizarre behavior. Um, But this particular youth pastor admitted it was a sexual component to him. And so they, they properly defined sexual abuse and they educated their congregations so their congregation could understand, yes, these, you know, these men, these boys are victims. This was, there was a sexual component. This is sexual abuse. This is what sexual abuse looks like and we need to take that seriously. And then they began to get a flood of reports from people in their congregation who had been abused by this man who had either not realized what was happening because they were too young uh, or who had not felt safe to speak up. But because the pastor made the church a safe place and displayed God's righteousness and God's truth in relation to sexual abuse, abuse victims were able to come forward. And they helped those victims report to the police. And then they are pursuing an independent investigation uh, through a, a wonderful organization that we have here in the States called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. They've asked that organization to come in and to look at what happened in their church to make sure that there was not mishandling, Of reports of abuse beforehand to make sure that they have the right policies and the right procedures in place and that they are sending a very clear message that reflects god's glory and god's goodness in relation to sexual abuse they're submitting themselves to outside authority and by doing that they are signaling very clearly to predators you will not be safe here because we take this seriously and we're going to treat this like it matters and they're signaling to survivors that they are safe they will be protected They will be shepherded with grace and with compassion. And then they're taking the time to educate the rest of the flock as to what abuse looks like and what abuse dynamics look like and really displaying God's glory uh, through the openness uh, to repentance and the openness to accountability and just an incredible display of humility and compassion. It was very encouraging for me to see a church do that because it doesn't happen often, uh, but when it does, it's absolutely beautiful.
2: This episode of Undiscussed was produced by Patrick Erskine and Eric Humphrey.
0: Editing done by Ben Skinner and the music was produced by Ian Post.
2: Go to p2c.sh slash undiscussed to find more episodes, show notes, and information about our podcast.
0: That's p2c.sh slash undiscussed. Also, remember to subscribe if you like what you hear, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at UndiscussedPod, all one word.
2: If you've got feedback for us, don't leave it Undiscussed.
0: Next time on Undiscussed, we'll hear the second half of this conversation. Rachel will share more about the experience of being an abuse survivor and how we can all be better allies.
1: Yeah, The, the thing with abuse survivors is there are often not real obvious uh, signals. One, of, uh, one survivor that I know kind of refers to it as flipping a switch. You can flip that switch and you can appear normal uh, for the context that you need to uh, because that's safer. Yeah, if, if you allow yourself to be seen as hurting uh, or you allow uh, some of that damage to be seen, you become vulnerable. Again, you've given someone access to you. And so survivors are very good at flipping the switch at appearing very composed, very calm, uh, and, and not giving off any signals at all because it makes them more vulnerable if they do.